I'm your host, Dr. Kay Eyre. The implementation of trauma-informed practices in schools requires leaders to attend to the safety and well-being of their staff just as much as they attend to these needs in their students. So how can trauma-informed practices help with caring for teachers and maintaining group cohesion amongst staff? In this second episode of the three-part series on trauma-informed leadership, we speak with Elizabeth Verstappen. Elizabeth was previously the principal of Saturdine Primary School in Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. In this episode, Elizabeth discusses practices that help teachers build skills in relational pedagogy and support both personal and professional growth of her staff. Hi everyone, welcome to Trauma Inform Education. My name is Dr. Givind Krishnamurthy and I'm here with Dr. Kay Eyre. Hi Kay. Hi Givind. Um, so we're in our second episode with Liz, um, the principal from Saturday in State School. Hi Liz, thank you for doing this. Hello Govind, hello Kay. Hi. Um, so this episode, we're focusing on the teachers and the staffing group. So um, if you haven't listened to our first episode, we discussed um, how we think about students and their needs and the role of the uh, principal um, in terms of leading trauma-informed practice. So if you haven't listened to it, do go back and check that out. Um, so today we're talking about teachers, Liz, and, and staff and the cohesion among staff groups. Um, you talked about safety a lot in the last episode um, when it comes to students. Uh, how do you think about safety and care when it comes to teachers? And, and, and I'd be curious to hear how you kind of induct teachers into the school and trauma-informed practice. How, what does that look like? Well, it's the ultimate um, focus, really, isn't it? You want your staff to be safe. You want them to be happy in the workplace like the students. You want them to feel valued and um, you want them to feel very much part of the team. So um, when I first arrived at Saturdine, it was quite, quite a divided school. And um, I spent probably six months just building relationships with staff. So role modelling to staff, the way I wanted them to interact with each other and the way I wanted them to interact with me. Um, I really enjoy... Um, people. So I really enjoyed looking for ways to connect with staff. Some of them were a little bit more difficult than other people and finding ways through that. So I guess um, as a leader, having that emotional intelligence to, um, to look for ways through, because it was very important to me that we had a cohesive team. So, um, you know, working out strategies to do that. Once we had a level of trust with each other, we then had to take the next step. And we'd all decided that we needed to do something different in the school because it wasn't working. And we weren't going to 
get anywhere if we just continued the same practices we'd been doing, um, where there was a lot of disruptive behaviour and um, people didn't feel safe at all. So with a little bit of thought and, and persuasion, we decided the trauma-informed um, practice, the research that we'd read around some of that was a really good way to go because it had an understanding of complex childhood trauma, which we believe was very impactful on our kids' lives and therefore impactful on our staff. Um, we were lucky that Joe Tucci happened to be coming to town and the whole staff got PD'd in that space. And that was the start of our journey where people walked away from that PD going, okay, so that's why um, this happens. And if I do this, then I'm just making it worse, aren't I? And I'm making it worse for myself. Yes, you know, it was sort of like a light going on. So we built on that. So then we talked to staff around that. They all had some ownership of it because we'd done it together. And we vowed then that all the PD we were going to do in the school, everyone was going to be part of it. Support staff, teaching staff, front office staff, bus drivers, everybody was going to be part of that because we all needed to be in the conversation. So everyone had to have a voice. And from that, we developed plans and strategies for working in the classroom to make sure that teachers felt safe. So, you know, we strategized around what would happen if, if this occurred, how would that look? How would we react? Who would be first responder? Who would, um, you know, right down to I'll step in and take your class and if I'm not here, so-and-so will do it. You go and have a cup of tea. You need to debrief with so-and-so if that happens and then we'll, you know, when you feel that you're um, resilient enough to go back into the classroom, then, and, and, you know, it had teething problems. There were some people that needed more of that support than others. Um, some people were more trusting than others. We had a lot of staff meetings around um, how that looked and we had to persist with those. So we had to be patient. We had to have many conversations over and over again. We couldn't just go, oh, for God's sake, we've had that conversation, move on. You know, it was that whole kindness and non-punitive thing that we had to model to our staff as well. And when we did that, then the staff started modelling it to each other. So everyone would listen and everyone would have an opinion. And sometimes we had to change things, but we were flexible in that. And sometimes people said, we feel really frightened when that happens. And, you know, for me, that was a real signal. That whole fear thing um, in front of kids, if, you know, if teachers feel that then that is that's very sort of powerful and it's um and it's very hard to to keep control of your class if you're feeling that fear so talking around strategies I mean we did a lot of PD Kay and Govind you were both involved in a lot of the PD we did um, in the school as a whole school and um talked about strategies and ways for dealing dealing with that. So we had to be very clear on our processes. We had to be very clear on the roles of the different people in that space. And we had to be very clear on how 
we looked after the well-being of staff. So the debriefing was very important. The school counsellor that we had on board, we used a lot for that. Um, we would never let a staff member leave the school if something had happened during the day that we knew made them upset. So we were very aware of what might upset our staff and what we might need to do to step in and, and um, you know, just have, have a chat. It didn't have to be long, but it did have to be an, an acknowledgement. And um, the whole idea of being very present in the school was important. So the leadership team would um, be very prominent in and out of classrooms. People got very used to us being in and out of their classrooms, talking to them, talking to kids. If we knew that a child might have come to school and looked a little bit unsettled, we might hover in that classroom, we might sit alongside the child, we might take them for a walk. Um, but we'd always let the teacher know that this might happen and if they felt a bit uncomfortable, just to call out and we would come and, and help out with that. So we were very much in the, you know, in the time of, of while the school was running, we were very prominent in those spaces. And um, I think it really helped staff to know that we had their back and that we weren't going to be judgmental to them about that. That was really important too. So we talk about being non-punitive with students. Hey, how about being non-punitive with staff? You know, like I always used to say to staff, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. They don't always tell us. So there might be something really horrible that someone's come to school with today. There might have been a death in the family. There might have been a cancer diagnosis from someone really close. We don't know that. And they come into school and pretend to be, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And then they start to fall to bits. So if you're always kind to someone, then you never have to go and say sorry. And it's always going to help them through the day. So just having that sort of um, way of dealing with things and talking in that sort of way, I think really helped build staff. So we had a really kind staff. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask, Liz, um, you know, I can imagine that the, you know, all the staff, you know, there might be some staff who were reluctant participants on the journey. Mm. We, we were talking before about how for some, for some staff to feel safe, they need to feel like the leader is, you know, acting with some authority and enforcing kind of limits and punitive sort of measures. Because yeah. if you're not, it feels kind of permissive. It doesn't feel safe. It feels like the kids are being let to get away with things. How did you manage those conversations, you know, when staff did feel as though, you know, it was too permissive? What was that like for you? Yeah, I, I think you had to know when to make the call. So you did have to be authoritative. You did, in a way, you had to be, um, you had to get, give the sense that you were very much in charge. So that calmness, that um, that thing that you didn't really get flapped easily by those things, you didn't sort of go, oh, my God, what are we going to do? You know, that, that you were in control. So I guess that was, um, that was something that we talked about as a leadership team. And you might pick your person who would go and deal with something. So if it was a physical thing, you, you often had, um, well, we had support staff in every classroom and, and they sort of knew the kids. And a lot of them were young males who, who were quite um, good at diffusing things. Uh, so to speak, 
And we were also very good at diffusing things. So that calm sort of, um, if there was something going on and I realised that staff were getting quite agitated, I could quite calmly walk in and go up and say, how about I take the class for the next 20 minutes and you go and have a cup of tea? Go and find Donna. Or I'd take Donna with me or Ali and say, come with me. We're going to step in here. You want to take the class? I'll go and have a chat. So, um, and then sort of um, being aware that you didn't want to do it in a way that caused um, an embarrassment, I suppose, because teachers are very much, you know, they take great pride in what they do. And if they lose control of a classroom, you don't want to make it really obvious that, um, that you think that they're not coping. So you have to do it quite subtly, I think, and you have to know your staff quite well and they have to know that you're not coming in there to give them a hard time. If they got that sense, then it would be very unprofessional. So I think um, that relationship stuff and that trust and then having these systems set up so that they know if I stepped in there, someone's told me, like one of the support staff, that things aren't going well or you've sent a card, I'll come in, You'll quietly exit out. There's no loss of face. There's no shame job. You'll go and calm down. I'll read the situation. That child might have to go home for a little bit of time because it's not safe, um, you know, and, and then we would sort of get everyone back to feeling okay. And you would touch base with the staff later on at the end of the day and say, how did that go? How did you feel? What else could we have done? Um, did you, you know, what do we need to do with this child? Sometimes they would say, get them out of my class. And you'd go, okay, well, we could, you know, maybe tomorrow we could swap them around for a bit. And so you had to sort of really be open and listen to their solutions too and hope that that would get them through. But, you know, everyone's different and some people needed a lot more of that support and encouragement. Um, I think most people said they felt very supported, which was good. And we'd often have little um, opportunities for staff to, to say that they needed more support or they didn't feel supported. Um, some people are better at that than others. You know, the bigger your staff, I suppose, the harder it is for you to get around and manage that. But, you know, you've got to have eyes on it all the time and you've got to have a sense of it. So yeah. sitting in my office wouldn't have worked for me because I wouldn't have known about any of this and I would have just dealt with the fallout. I was just going not, to... Not a good gonna, style. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was just, I'm going to throw to Kay in a bit, but I was just going to ask about that, Liz. Uh, uh, you know, it feels like you have a very visible presence in the school. Mm. And I can imagine people who work in bigger schools or, you know, other leaders kind of going, I just don't have time for that. You know, I've got a thousand other things I need to be doing this is the reason why I have a team of deputies or whatever, you know, this is their job to do it. Yeah. How do you think about how you spend your time and also about how you build up that leadership team around you, do you think? Well, you've got to have the vision for a start and you've got to share that, you know, that's got to be a shared thing in the school. So, you know, you have to have developed with your staff what you want your school to feel like and look like and sound like. Um, and, and when you've got that, then you've got to put the, the protocols and the policies in place that enable that to happen with staff. You also have to have a very sharp and narrow focus. 
So our focus was in the trauma-informed space. We wanted to make our school safe. We wanted to make it a place where kids came and felt valued. We wanted our staff to feel safe and we wanted our kids then to be able to learn because they wouldn't be able to learn if they were in a space that was very disruptive. So that was, that was our real focus. There were lots of other things thrown at us. To be able to have the ability to say, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that, I'm pushing back on that, and being quite upfront about it with, um, with the regional directors or whatever that, no, um, our school's not going to be part of that. You know, it, it takes a little bit of courage. Um, you're often, you know, sort of re regarded a little bit differently, I suppose, because you're not doing what everyone else is doing, but it pays dividends in the end. And I think that it's your school and as a principal, you have a lot of autonomy in your school. And with your staff, you have to decide how that school's going to look and run. And then you have to be, as a leader, the one who pushes back and gives people the space to actually do that. So you do have to be brave and you do have to be bold. And, you know, if you've got a career pathway in front of you, you might want to think about just how brave and bold you're going to be. But, you know... We had a little mantra occasionally that would say, I don't think they'll fire me. Do you? <laughs> I, think that, I think that is the boldness, isn't it? That, thinking about the worst case scenario. And, and I, think, I think I've said this to you before, Liz, and it's such a parallel to the kids who are afraid themselves and then the staff who are nervous about looking incompetent or getting hurt, you know, and part of that, what we're requiring of all of them is to have courage and you know, risk being vulnerable mm. and to trust Absolutely. that they're all safe. I'll just check it over to Kay just to see if she had any questions or comments. Yeah, no, just following on that, Govind, I think it's um, once you do um, some, some professional learning in trauma-informed practice, I think there's a point in time after you've done, you know, sort of immersed yourself in it and you're starting to work in a culture where you're seeing it actually happen in front of you, that it occurs to you that, oh, the same applies to me, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. like you, you, yeah. you separate yourself from this is the teachers and this is the children, this is their needs and that's what I'm all about because teachers notoriously, like many professionals, put themselves second and then it occurs to you that, oh, that's the same. Same with leadership, like as Liz was talking, I felt that the whole foundation of her being you know, such a good leader is that she was attuned to the needs of her staff. Just like we tell teachers, you need to be attuned. How do you do that? You need to be present. You need to listen, you know, and all of that stuff. It's exactly the same. Grown-ups need it too, mm. you know. But I think we tend to for quite some time still separate ourselves from those, from having needs and additional rights and all of those things because we're all very different as teachers from what we're providing for the children. And it's it's not that difficult if you think of it as people need mm. these things, you know. Um, yeah, you so, it, no, thank you. And if, and if you think of it as a team too, that, look, we're all in this together. We're all mm. trying to make a difference here. And so we need all our voices to be heard in this. So we can't just have 
one person with the vision saying, this is how it's going to be, and you're all going to do this. It's not a good way to operate from my point of view. You know, I would rather have people saying, okay, we heard what you said. We don't agree with it. Can you explain? Okay, so what if we did it this way? And you then have to be flexible and say, yeah, look, why not? Why don't we try that? I used to say to staff, put your ideas up. No idea is a bad idea until it's a bad idea. Let's give it a go. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. But we've got to try different things. And you're all part of this. And, you know, it's that IQ stuff. So me by myself, IQ, everyone together, it's huge. So we can solve enormous problems as a team with everyone on board believing in what we're doing because they have a voice in it too, not just because they're being told to do it. And so you do have to listen to the disgruntled ones and you do have to find a way to bring everyone on board. And there has to be a lot of consensus happening. So you do have to be really in that mix and seeing it as something that's really interesting. But you've got to be able to direct it too in, in a way that you know is going to work. So you've got to have that vision tucked firmly in your head and you've got to be very, very determined that everyone's going to understand what you're saying so that they're going to want to come on the journey too. Yeah. Liz, I was curious about um, the culture at the school in terms of how teachers kind of interact with each other. I think if you talk to principals, they say, they spend a lot of time working out things um, that are happening between teachers. Um, I, I was wondering about, you know, what, what you did at the school and what trauma-informed practice kind of offers in terms of building cohesion. Um, and, and I'll just give you a heads up. I think you were saying something about sick leave once, which was quite a nice example of mm. um, cohesion. So can you, could you speak to that in terms of... Yeah, cohesion? yeah, I guess, um, I guess when... The trauma-informed practice stuff helped us shift our mindset to non-punitive. And around that came this element of kindness to yourself and to people around you. And it's a very simple concept, kindness, in a way, and one that's often disregarded and it's just a word, you know. But it, it, it's a very effective um, thing, kindness. So if you're kind to people around you, then they in turn are going to be kind back to you and they're going to be kind to others too. And that kindness can extend to understanding um, where staff are at in their personal lives to some extent and being able to say to them, um, I've got a relief teacher I can get tomorrow. I know that you, you know, you're doing it pretty hard at the moment. Why don't you have a day? And, you know... Those sorts of little strategies and, you know, when people come to you because they have a, a wedding, a very good friends getting married and stuff, you know, often managing those situations in schools with staffing really gets to people in leadership roles and they are more inclined to go, no, you know, you can't do that. Whereas we tended to look really hard to find ways where we could compromise that and try and support our staff where they needed to have that support, which really paid dividends in the end because, because as the school became kinder and happier, people wanted to be there. 
And it was a lot of fun. And I know it was hard and it still is hard. It's a very hard place to work. But there is an element of we're all in this together and there is an element that you get supported and heard and so it's not such a bad job. And um, I think it's really important in schools that staff feel that they are part of a team and that their voices are heard and that, you know, that people in leadership roles are sort of open to them learning and them changing and meeting the needs of people as that goes along. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a very demanding role, but um, but a really fun one too. Yeah, and, and I will say, you know, it's incredible that you've been able to have such little um, turnover really in your staffing. Or very little turnover for such a, for such um, a difficult school that had a lot of turnover, very little turnover of staff. In fact, recruitment, you know, I used to do, um, I remember in a previous school I worked in, we would probably be looking at nine or 10 staff a year just through attrition. It was a big school, but, you know, maternity leave and all sorts of things like that. We've just been so lucky that that's not an issue for us. And when we do need a staff member, someone pops up, like the lady from Sydney I was telling you about who heard about our little school and decided, I want to work there, and rang up and said, I'm interested in working in your school, and um, came to Alice Springs and visited us and had a look around. You know, we're quite honest with staff when they come to look at our school, and, um, you know, that's always a tricky one. You have to be, you have to be honest, but you, have, but you don't want to sort of make it sound negative. Um, but people are always really interested. I think teachers are amazing people because they're often very curious and they often like a challenge and they like a good idea. And, you know, teachers love the idea of being kind to kids and, and getting kids alongside and learning. And I think we tick a lot of those boxes for people in that little school. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, having worked in that child protection kind of area, one of the remarkable things, I think, which is almost like a gift you can give to people is protecting the compassion and good intentions that they come into the work with, you know, yes. things to be able to protect that, I think is such a gift because I think with things like burnout and like care trauma and things like that, it's the, you know, in some ways it's the erosion of that. I was, I was curious, Liz, when you see that, uh, you know, in teachers, and you might have seen it in some teachers, where you're starting to see that negativity, that little bit of burnout, how do you kind of approach it? Is it just about touching base with them and checking in on how they're going, or was there anything else that you um, did there? Well, we had a lot of success in that space, really, because when you start talking to teachers, touching base with them, certainly, but recognising that they might be feeling a bit burnt out, but also a bit sort of unhappy in the situation they're in. Um, making a few suggestions like, what would you really like to do? What are your interests really, you know, where, where do they really sit? What about a change? If you were able to change in the school, what would you do? I mean, they can't say principal, obviously, but they could, but... <laughs> But often teachers would, would you know, really self-reflect and go, 
you know, I'd really like to have a go at doing the PE job or I'd really like to have a go at doing non-contact time with musical drama because I've always loved that and I'd, I'd like to try something different or I'd love to do, you know, um, social-emotional learning. And, and so you can have those conversations and often you can make a change for them, which is very productive. So, you know looking at staff at the strengths that they bring and the skills that they bring and seeing if you can't sort of change it up a bit for them or give them a different focus and um, and that often reinvigorates them enough to make them want to stay and, and feel very valued again and bring a different um, focus in the school. Oh, that's great. I'll, I'll throw it over to Kay for any final comments, but I was struck by how you said, you know, in the first episode about things being student-led, but I think here you're describing how things can be staff-led as well in terms mm. of their needs and interests, which gives them some sense of autonomy, I suppose, in the environment they're working in if they're feeling a bit kind of run down as well. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. We had some great programs result from that, like Rock and Water and um, some of those, you know, therapeutic programs, drumming and stuff, where staff went and did extra PD and then came back and bought their skills and started these programs up in the school. Um, yeah, that, very valuable. Well, that's great. Kay, did you have any final comments or thoughts? Just a quick one, um, following on what Liz just said. In my experience as a classroom teacher, my own experience, I would have those ideas all the time <laughs> mm. in my head working in a school. Nobody ever asked me. Mm. Nobody physically came to my door and said, hey, what about or do you have? I remember the only way I thought I could tell a principal, regardless of what school I was in, what even year level I wanted to teach the following year was filling out the form with the preferences and then you got back, this is what you're teaching and the underlying process of that was depends who the teachers were, whether they got their first preference or not because there was an underlying rule about how they were processed and what was taken mm -hmm. notice of and what wasn't. But just that simple fact that you like the kids, that somebody says, what do you think? And you actually get to say that loud. You know, it sounds yeah. really simple, but it's especially in a really big school, I guess, it may be more difficult, I, you know, but um, just asking. But most good ideas are pretty simple, aren't they? Kate? They are. Yeah, just mm -hmm. that opportunity, you know. Yeah. May not have any, but it's about give, being given the opportunity, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Being heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah, being heard. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Thank you so much, Liz. That was really useful. Lots of practical examples. Really appreciate your time. Um, we've got one other episode in this series focusing on the leader themselves and their kind of relationship with the community and the school community. Um, so we look forward to speaking to you then. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was Elizabeth Verstappen speaking about trauma-informed leadership. Be sure to keep an eye out for the third and final episode in this series. To learn more about trauma-informed education, 
visit our website, tipbs.com. That's tipbs.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.